Business owners are cluing into the fact that Bitcoin is here to stay, but its adoption is only about where internet adoption was in the mid-90s. In other words, there's still a ton of upside and opportunity. If you want to learn how other business owners and entrepreneurs are using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses so that you can too, stick around at the end of this episode to hear the trailer for my newest podcast, Business Bitcoinization. And now, on to today's episode. You're listening to the Life as Leadership podcast. Are you looking for motivation and encouragement on your path to becoming a better leader? If so, you've come to the right place. Keep listening to find a community of leaders committed to learning and taking action to improve their world. The Life as Leadership podcast, where leaders gather to grow together. Here's your host, Josh Friedemann. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show today. And to those who are listening on the day this is released, happy Labor Day to you. I'm really excited about today's episode because this is our first look at educational leadership in a formal sense. We're going to be hearing from a leadership team of a network of schools in Indianapolis who are doing some really great work. And on top of that, next week, we're actually going to get to hear from a few of the teachers who work at these schools. So if you like what you hear this week, be sure to tune in next week so you get to hear from the teacher's perspective as well. Now, usually I'm joined by a couple others in the studio, but since today's interview went a little bit longer than usual, we're skipping some of the intro portions of the show and going straight to the interview. But do not despair because Cody Coleman and Molly Bowser will be joining me in the studio on Friday to discuss what we hear in today's episode. Speaking of which, let's go ahead and get to that right now. The Paramount Schools are a three-school network with over 900 students in Indianapolis. These schools exist to inspire learning through an unparalleled academic approach and to transform communities by changing lives. Today we're talking about the difference that leadership can make in an educational context, and I'm joined by four administrators from the Paramount Schools. If you would, introduce yourselves to the audience. Scott Fry, Chief Academic Officer, Paramount Schools. Mary Laughlin, Operations Manager at Paramount Brookside. Kyle Beauchamp, Principal at Paramount Community Heights. Dexter Taylor, Principal at Paramount Brookside. Well, welcome to the podcast. Now, we're going to be delving into the why of Paramount success throughout this interview, but to the listener who's never heard about Paramount before, what are some of the results that the school has been able to achieve that make it stand out? I think that you, um, we could talk about behavioral, social extracurricular results, but I think what we do here really focuses on academics. And you're talking about a community that arguably is socioeconomically the the community with the highest need in Indianapolis. And though it's a public school, we're open to all students. Um, So anyone in the neighborhood is more than welcome to um, come out, fill out registration paperwork and and um, enroll at the school, you're still seeing year in and year out over the last eight years academic results that, that, that would put Paramount Brookside in the top 10% of schools in the state. And what is it that has led to that success for students at Paramount? I guess I could speak to that first. I've been here all 10 years, and I would say the number one reason is uh, effective teachers who have a heart for our students and our community. As far as the teachers go, teachers obviously play a major role in a school's life. How do you go about actually identifying teachers that are able to help to produce the results that you're able to bring about in students' lives through Paramount? 
Yeah, I think for us, it starts with the interview process. Um, we vet for things like coachability, um, people who align to our value system. Uh, it can work hard uh, and it can also um, get along with others, um, certainly to serve students as well. But someone who really fits the, the Paramount model in terms of their coachability and their willingness to, you know, to be coached and get better every day. Yeah. So two questions off of that. You talked about the importance of working within the community of Paramount. In addition to being able to work with students, what types of things do you want in a teacher so that you can make sure that they are a good fit for your school community? Um, I think teachers who are really team-based do well here. So somebody that's willing to work with others within their grade level, work with the administration. Teachers here don't work on an island, so they're working with one another to meet the best needs of the students. So I think somebody that's willing to make changes accordingly on a team level um, and isn't going to serve themselves on an island for what is going to work for their kids, but serving the entire population of Paramount um, is really important for our staff here. And Mary, you may have incorporated some of these things into your answer just then, but a second ago, the value system of Paramount was mentioned. So could someone speak to the value system of Paramount and what precisely that includes? Yes. So, you know, just finding, you know, people based off character that are selfless, that are, you know, coachable, going to be great teammates and they're going to take personal accountability you know to their actions and you know that's all you know based around you know supporting academics here what does the hiring process look like for finding teachers who fit this pretty specific bill of desires at paramount so we ask character-based questions that are all open-ended we don't ask any content-based questions so we're not asking you questions about uh differentiation or um data driving instruction or the way that you're going to roll out a mini lesson with a particular academic standard. We're asking questions that are open-ended, that are situational questions that are, are directly asked to vet for your value system that don't have a right or wrong answer, but do either align or not align with, with the school's value system. So what you're saying there is really interesting because the, the truth is that type of approach can be used for just about any context. And this podcast is for all sorts of leaders. And a lot of them, if they're not doing it right now, at some point, they're going to be looking to hire new people. So are there any examples that you could give as far as what that might look like in an interview process? What types of questions or scenarios you would present? Our interview can last anywhere from, you know, five questions to 30 different questions, depending on uh, what position you're being interviewed for. Obviously, the one that we take uh, super, super seriously is the teaching position. So we'll give you a few situational-based questions that we would ask a, a teaching candidate. One of those questions would be, tell us a little bit about what you prefer. Do you prefer you know, a stringent, structured classroom? You're going to need to choose one or the other, nowhere in the middle. But this stringent, structured classroom that might look like the 1990s, um, an administrator walks in, each student's working independently, but there's evidence that every single one of your students, 100% of your students, are grappling uh, with reading, writing, or mathematics. They're getting better in those areas, and there's evidence of that. Or would you prefer to be running a loose classroom where kids are having a good time, kids are talking, most of the conversation is about academics, but ah, 40 50% of the conversation it is about social things going on after school or maybe something that's happening on the weekend. All the kids are having a great time. They seem to enjoy it, but uh, 
evidence is showing 30, 35% of your students are grappling and getting better with reading, writing, and mathematics. Which classroom would you prefer to lead? Which one are you most proud of? Hmm. And you have to choose one. So it can't be anywhere in the middle. So obviously as a school, we're looking for, and it's not ideal because you want your kids having fun. You want your kids engaged. But we want teachers who know that we live in a world where the number one, two, and three indicators of a productive adult are proficiency in reading, writing, and mathematics. And that's what we want to drive towards. Um, so there's not a right answer um, to that question uh, that's 100% correct. But there is a value that we're looking for, which is, as a teacher, I want all of my students to be getting better uh, in the area of academics. So this this hiring process, is it something that other schools are adopting? Because it sounds like it's a relatively unique approach. You know, we've shared out a little a little bit about what we do. We're, we're an open book when it comes to what we do. And if people want to come in with the right heart to learn from us um, about how we do things, and we certainly love learning from other schools, too. Um, but as far as the character-based interview, I don't know that there's been a lot of traction within education. You know, it's interesting, though. Uh, I've had a kidney transplant, and my nephrologist has come in who runs five dialysis centers, and they use it in the hiring uh, in, the, in the medical offices and the dialysis centers. That is interesting. So did you end up adopting this from other people, or is this something that you kind of arrived at as a school internally and eventually found out that other people were also doing something similar? I don't know that there's anybody that has, is, is doing it quite like this. Um, this was something that evolved out of questions between school leaders and teachers in meetings that, that we said, man, we're identifying some core character traits within our employees that we have in common, and we kind of need to create questions that would vet this quality out of candidates. That was the, uh, the genesis of the questions, and we may have started with six or seven that, that's now 30 just based on the evolution of conversations about what works here. And was this something that you had from the beginning of your school? And the reason I ask is maybe as a follow-up question that you could go ahead and answer right now is throughout the, the process, if you didn't start out this way, were there any growing pains as you transitioned from maybe a more traditional approach to what you have now? Yeah, and I'll let Mary speak on this too. Um, and, and Kyle came in uh, about the time that we, we kind of changed the way we were running the school. The first two years of the school were different levels of, of failing, really. Uh, myself and the executive director were both coming from suburban schools that were exploratory first type schools, you know, definitely a, a project-based approach, a loose behavioral management system. And after two years, the state sent out letters to the board and letters to our parents saying that if the school continued to fail at such epic levels that they were going to close us down. So that really forced us to go back and evaluate what we thought great education looked like. We studied some schools in Gary and Chicago and came back with, with the idea that we were going to have to change some things because the kids that we were serving in this particular school community uh, are awesome kids who have great qualities who bring great qualities to school every single day, but different qualities, a different toolbox than kids in, in a suburban school would. And so we had to meet those needs and, and take a look at those amazing qualities these kids have and really capitalize on that, just understanding that we're serving a different demographic. And I think along with our interview process, um, a lot of our questions lead us to answers that tell us about um, the qualities that we look for in an employee in terms of 
are they going to be coachable? Um, so we have certain questions that kind of feel out their coachability. How are they going to respond to feedback, um, especially being in the classroom? If there's, um, you know, hard conversations or things that we need to change within the classroom, um, how are they going to adapt to that? And I think looking for people who are solution-based as well. So when we bring up questions about um, state testing or hot topics within education, within the, the realm of education, how do they respond to those questions? Do they respond in a negative way? Um, or are they more solution-based in how they look at the problems and the issues facing education today? And how, how effective is this process? Has the quality of teacher changed as you have changed your hiring process? Yeah, as, as Scott mentioned, um, I came along in the process as an assistant principal about six years ago at Paramount Brookside as the process was kind of evolving and just learned for five years and grew within the organization. Um, so I'm kind of a testament to the leadership model here at Paramount, as is Dexter. And I can tell you that launching a new school, you know, there's already pressure on you because of the success of, uh, you know, Paramount Brookside to bring in solid people. And, you know, five years ago, I may have been looking for something completely different uh, in teachers than I would have had I not grown in our system. And to look for those values and the coachability, and I always tell people it's a lot easier to coach someone to be a solid teacher and grow them as a teacher than it is to grow them uh, in their own value system. Um, so to vet for that, those types of things from the beginning was so important to the launch of our second campus. Some of it has to do with, uh, to the interview process with a, a podcast of yours that I listened to, I think that you conducted over the summertime with Eric Maddox on just listening to learn. And so we have this list of 20 to 30 questions, and you can ask those questions in order and have a semi-successful interview. But one of the reasons why we have and, and grow a system of leaders that are sitting in on interviews is listening to the response of the candidate and asking follow-up questions that would lend to more insight about their value system. So you might have a question like, uh, in your first year as a teacher, do you, would you, would you want to be seen as a worker bee, somebody who comes in and gets a lay of the land, uh, is a good listener, is really there to, um, just understand the culture of the school and get to know the culture of the school, uh, listen to leaders, do exactly what you're told to do and do it to the very best of your ability? Or do you want to be seen as somebody who's coming in as a difference maker, somebody that's going to make decisions and make an impact right away and that their voice is every bit as important as somebody who's been around five or six years, who's proven through data that they, that they can do it right. And so when they answer that question, when they say difference, let's say they were to say difference maker, yes, I think my voice should uh, carry the same weight as somebody who's who's taught here five years, you can just stop there or ask, why do you think it should? And that leads to vetting character and vetting personality that that may make that the right answer or the wrong answer. That's really interesting. Yeah, it, it's a good example of, I, I could see either one of those being a great answer, but the reason that people are answering the question, the the underlying presuppositions and the things that they believe that tells you a whole lot more than the actual answer itself. Now, a second ago, Kyle mentioned the the leadership model, and I'm hoping that someone can speak a little bit more to that. What do you mean when you're when you're talking about getting teachers involved at Paramount? What does the leadership model look like, and maybe what is the goal for developing leaders at Paramount? You know, so much of, especially the majority of our candidates that are coming straight out of school that have a mindset that 
you know, maybe changing careers every three to five years to keep things fresh in their life. And they've been told that um, that'll lead to a happier, more fulfilling life is that when they come in to our school, we know that they may not be a productive member of our community, at at least data wise, until years two or three. So we better do what we have to do to keep people on staff for three to six years to break even and post six years to have great leaders. And so within your first year, you're trying to keep your finger on the pulse of where this particular employee wants to go and making sure that they have opportunities that they find enriching and that they're growing, but not putting them in a position where you're giving them so much responsibility that they're going to sink. That's a constant balancing act. And you certainly are starting with lower impact decision-making that they're a part of. And they, they may have a seat at the table, but they're not going to be the, they're not going to be the decision maker. And so I started in the world of finance and here's an example that I can give you. And, and really an example that I go back to when we're growing leaders is I started, came right out of IU uh, with a degree in finance and was a financial advisor, uh, at, at Merrill Lynch. And I had been in landscaping, like I had, I had my own like little landscaping thing going in college. And so the first group of people that I called were all my landscaping clients. But you can imagine going from the guy who cut their grass to now the person who's running their family finances. Now that I'm in my 40s, I would never do that. Um, but luckily, I had a number of people that I cut grass for that at least gave me the opportunity to sit down at their dinner table and talk to them about what I was doing. Well, there's a, a guy named Mr. Oja who lived on the west side of Indianapolis and what he did the first time was say, I can't give you all, you know, our, our family retirement, but what I can do is I can start doing uh, $50 a month with you. And so for the first year, he put in $50 a month into an account and I managed that account and, and definitely tried my best to be the best financial advisor I could be for him. So the second year he comes back and says, uh, you know what, my, my daughters have these small uh, college funding accounts. They were four or $5,000 a piece. Um, can you manage those? So in years two and three, I managed those accounts and called them to the best of my ability and, and uh, did my best to provide the, the services that I thought were first rate and first class and got out to his house and met with. So finally, by year five, he was turning over some personal accounts. And it took until year seven for him to sign over the family retirement. But I look at what he did and he put these hurdles in place that were at my appropriate readiness level over seven years to the point where he trusted and I had been seasoned enough to to really handle larger responsibility. And that's what we try to do here initially. We believe in candidates right away. We want them to have a seat at the table and to be part of the decision-making, but what decisions they make are gonna look a lot different in year one than year seven. And a lot of it's because of what they've proven over those seven years. I love that very purposeful approach. And one of the things that I'm wondering is how how do you manage that? How do you figure out what responsibility to give to who and how much responsibility? Is there a good metric for that or is it is it so uh is there so much variation from person to person that it's really hard to give any good guidelines for other leaders out there who may like what they're hearing but don't quite know how to make that work for them? I guess I would turn it over to um, the other three leaders that are here, but I I can certainly say, again, it goes back to that, you know, when I'm listening to your Maddox interview, I was just thinking, man, he is talking a lot about what we do here. He, I mean, this is really hitting home. I want my teachers to hear this podcast. And 
again, it's, it, there's responsibilities, there's tasks that they're doing, but it's asking the right questions as to why they made this particular decision or why they think this, you know, what are the outcomes? Are they speaking as Mary said, you know, we want uh, teachers here to be positive. We want teachers to be relaxed and we want teachers to be solution-based. And are they using the type of language in these smaller tasks early that we feel like, man, that's a positive person. Uh, that's somebody who's staying relaxed under pressure. And that's somebody who's talking by way of solutions, not by way of problems. If we give people the task of curriculum uh, adoption, we, we don't want the people that we put in charge of that to come in and tell us what's wrong with these two particular curriculum publishers. We want people to come in and say, here's some gaps and here's how we're going to solve it. That's what we're looking for. And, and we consistently try to model that for our teachers and, and praise it up when teachers are um, communicating in that fashion. Yeah, I would say uh, one of the most valuable pieces to this is just time spent. Um, I think the more time you spend with you know teachers who are emerging as leaders or administrators who are emerging as leaders, the more you get to know their passions and the more you get to know if you're philosophically aligned to them and if they're philosophically aligned to the system. Uh, so the more time you spend with uh, staff members, I think the more you kind of get an authentic look at where their passions are and where they're going to be successful as you delegate key leadership opportunities to them. And I think um, similar to how we are with our students, if you're teaching long division, um, you can't teach that until students have the foundations of multiplication mastered. Um, so I think with teachers, we're not going to ask a first-year teacher to help us make curriculum decisions uh, when they haven't gone through testing or when they haven't implemented the curriculum that we currently have. Um, so really giving them bite-sized chunks in terms of responsibility and making sure that they've mastered one thing before we're adding more to their plate um, for their, both their mental um, you know, mental status in terms of making sure that work is still a positive environment, um, but also making sure they're growing in a healthy way as a leader, that they're mastering one thing before they're taking over additional leadership responsibility from there. And from my personal experience, I would say, you know, being able to come in and, you know, being able to sit in in meetings and watch the model being played out and then being able to replicate that model myself and then bringing up leaders and giving them that same model uh, for success is, you know, a big uh, cog in this wheel as far as, you know, what we do here at Paramount. So I'd love to get real quick from each of you, if possible, some of your most helpful or practical insights to help leaders as they're looking at who to hire and how to develop people. What advice would you give? It could be specific to educational leaders or broad enough to apply to leaders in general, but what advice or what insight would you give to them based off of your experiences? I think one thing that we do with our teachers as in terms of helping them grow and to develop into roles that we know they'll be successful in is really always highlighting the positive. So in any conversation that we have with teachers, um, if there's something we're talking about they need to improve upon or something that we need to have a hard conversation about, uh, we don't start it or end it on a positive note. We or on a negative note, we always start and end on a positive note. So while there may be something in there that is a more difficult conversation or something that we're addressing, um, we're going to start off really positive, let them know that we really value them as an employee. Um, we value what they do every day. Um, and then we're also going to end it on a positive note. So let them know something they're really doing well as an instructor. Um, relationships that they've built with students or with families, but still making sure to address the things that need to be changed or are concerns that may be addressed in the same conversation. 
Yeah, I I think Mary's spot on, and uh, you know a lot of a lot of what we do here revolves around. And I'd say there's a study out of Vanderbilt that was done by Wallace Foundation on effective school leadership, and it really focused in three areas. And I think some of it's applicable to to leaders, not just in education, but those uh, those three areas is do you have a clear vision and and clear values that uh, your staff is aware of, and are you consistently um, informally assessing is the staff on the same page when it comes to the clear vision of the school um, here and then the values and characters that it takes to be successful here. I'd say that'd be number one. Two is a safe working environment, certainly in education. Um, the Vanderbilt study has shown that to retain great teachers, the number one thing that great teachers look for is a safe working environment. So what are we doing to preserve, to preserve the culture of the school, to make it feel safe, positive, relaxed? That's important. Um, and three is cultivating leadership, which is as soon as we've identified somebody who's a potential leader in our school, are we meeting with them regularly and walking that career path with them where they feel like the school's invested in their career and trying, trying to put them in, in a position where they're fulfilled in their working life. So again, clear vision, two, safe working environment, and three is, is cultivating, you know, their career. And I'd say, you know, from my experience, I think one thing that we really do well here is when implementing feedback to staff, uh, not giving them multiple skills that they need to work on, but, you know, providing them with one skill that they need to master because that one foundational skill will bleed into other areas where they'll be able to improve. And then, you know, just circling back to, you know, what Mary mentioned, uh, using that sandwich of love, you know, leading out with the positive, the feedback, and then another positive. That way that staff member, you know, truly feels cured about. You know, I always go back to how important it is in, in education today to uh, keep uh, solid employees, solid teachers, solid leaders in your building. Um, I think that's the most important thing you can do as a school leader. And to do that, you have to have a firm uh, leadership structure in place. Um, so that would be my advice to anyone would be to make sure that um, whatever works for your school, there's, there's a solid leadership structure in place uh, so that there can be a solid reach from principal to leaders underneath um, down to the teacher so they feel supported every single day. Well, I don't want to leave anything on the table, any insight that y'all may have. So I'm wondering, before we conclude this part of the interview, is there anything else that you think would be valuable for educators and leaders to hear from you and your experience at Paramount? Well, I would say that I think so often in the interview process, we as school leaders are just really get fired up and emotional when we have that dead poet society type teacher that comes in and you feel like, man, they're charismatic. They're cap. They're going to captivate the audience. Kids are going to love this teacher. This is the teacher you read about the, the teacher with their hair on fire. You see all these people making money on, um, you know, telling people how to teach with their hair on fire. And I think what we found over time and a lot of people, you know, you look at the end of dead poet society and people kind of want to forget that the teacher was fired and, you know, a kid died at the end of that movie. And from our perspective, we've definitely taken, man, almost the polar opposite approach, which is uh, we want that meat and potatoes type teacher that's more substance than charisma. We want that teacher that's more sisterhood than yaya, more steak than sizzle. 
And when you go into the classroom, you're not moved to tears because it's so emotional, because it's so stimulating. You're actually in a place where you can focus and you see that kids can focus because it's not overstimulating. And it's that type of environment. It's that type of person that uh, more often than not, you'll find is selfless. You'll find that is coachable. You'll find will take personal accountability. Um, And over time, like Bo said, um, those are the character traits that that inevitably make a great leader here at Paramount. I think one thing we haven't um, necessarily driven home that is really important to us here is just showing our employees how much we value them. So that's in terms of trying to provide them, you know, the best benefit packages we can, providing them a cell phone plan, providing them um, time at home with their families. So trying to eliminate as many after-school meetings as we can so that people can get home, spend time with their families, uh, maintain that work-life balance. So just as much as we want our kids to know and our families to know that we really value them and we um, believe they can succeed and we want them to succeed, uh, we need our staff to feel the same way, to feel valued, to feel like coming to work every day. Um, They genuinely work with people that respect them and value them as a professional. And I think maintaining that throughout any conversation that we have, I think is really important for us. Awesome. Well, before we finish, I always have a few final questions that are meant to inspire the listeners to better leadership. And we have four people. This is the first time we've ever done this. So we're probably just going to have one to two answer each of these questions. What is some lesson, saying, or experience that continues to influence your leadership to this day? I think I touched on it earlier. I mean, I think the experience of, of coming into creating a school both of us really speaking on behalf of the executive director with a clearly defined vision and um, seeing after two years that it wasn't working, that um, we weren't servicing this, the, the student population effectively and not to be so stubborn when it came to what our belief system was that we stayed with it to, to be able to really reflect uh, after two years of failure and say, man, we're just not doing this the right way. We're not servicing these students in an appropriate way. And we're going to have to, uh, figure out what changes need to be made and make those changes. And if that rocks our belief system as to what great education looks like, then so be it because we need to be doing great things for kids. And right now we're not. And I think that's, that's hard for, uh, leaders, especially people who've done something, what they thought was at a very high level, for a very long time and to come in and realize, Hey, it's a different culture. Uh, it's a different time now. And we've got to, uh, we've got to change a little bit about what we believe and do things differently. Man, that was a, that, that was a hard year. I think one thing in terms of leadership here at Paramount would be, uh, ownership over buy-in. So while not every staff member is making the final decision, um, they all kind of get their say in it. So they can feel that they have ownership over the decisions being made in terms of curriculum, in terms of um, just decisions that the school is making. Um, It's not buy-in from admins making these decisions and now we want all the teachers to buy into this idea. We really feel out the idea uh, with teacher leaders and with teachers before making a lot of our decisions. So it's more teacher ownership. They are on board from the beginning versus having to get that buy-in on the backside of things, I think is pretty important. Use three descriptors to finish this sentence. A leader is? I think a leader is a good listener. I would say a leader is positive, relaxed, and solution-based. A leader is understanding. I love that. Tackling it as a team. That's great. What is a question that leaders should be asking either themselves or others? One thing that 
I consistently reflect on is, am I modeling what we see exemplary behavior as, you know, um, when you talk about being coachable and you talk about being selfless and you talk about holding yourself personally accountable and you're asking your employees to do that and then data comes out and maybe it isn't what you want it to be. And then my go-to is to make excuses. And I think just being super, uh, self-aware of, Hey, this is an opportunity for, uh, me to be an example of personal accountability and not to feel like that makes me vulnerable by, uh, admitting, man, I made a mistake or, you know, this was a bad decision and I'm sorry. It's been a process for me to be able to do that. But I, I do feel like some of that vulnerability, um, by, by taking personal accountability, by saying you were the person that was wrong, uh, by showing your staff that you're coachable, um, you know, by listening to others by ter- using terms like are instead of I, or, or, uh, we, instead of me and these types of things have been important and, and to me something that not always is comfortable, but something that I continue to, I mean, daily reflect on. What is a book that you would recommend to leaders? Talent is Overrated by Jeff Colvin. I really like The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. It's taught me a lot about team cohesiveness and and, uh, common mistakes that can be made within a team environment. Neuroteach by Glenn Whitman. If you could get every listener to start doing something this week to help them be a better leader, just something simple, what would it be? Listen to learn. I was going to say the same thing. Anyone else with something besides listen to learn, or is that the uh, group consensus here? Take responsibility. Good stuff. All right. After the interview, Scott had something to say about why the idea of listening to learn was so important to the administrators at Paramount. So here is what he had to say. So one of the books that we studied uh, over the summer as a leadership team was The Listening Leader by Shane Safir. And something that he talked a lot about uh, was that leaders listen for three reasons. One is listening to win. So I'm listening to the person just enough to know what their side is so I can chime in to win this argument. So I'm listening to win. Um, Something that's a little bit healthier, but still not where we want to be as leaders is listening to help. So somebody comes in to your office, explains a situation and in your mind, you're thinking, how can I help this person? I'm going to come up with a solution as quickly as I can so I can show that I can provide them value. So I'm listening to you just enough to hear the situation and then come in and solve the situation. And what we're trying to move to is um, the third and most productive way to lead and listen, and that would be listening to learn. So I'm listening to what you're saying. I'm asking you questions, understanding your side, hearing your desire, hearing what you want to see happen, and then calling upon resources and, and experiences to aid and support the situation. And that's something that we consistently have talked about this fall as we started a new school year is we need to be listening to learn. And finally, we have an arbitrary but insightful question. And um, uh, I'd like to hear everyone's view. This this question is, is as a general life principle, is it better to ask why or why not? I'd say why, because when you ask why, you get a better understanding as far as, you know, the intentions and, you know, what value can be, you know, taken, you know, from that question. I would definitely say why too. I feel like maybe it's just my own personal interpretation of that question that you're asking. Um, I feel like why is more in response to 
um, somebody else's feelings and somebody else's opinions, um, somebody else's ideas, you ask why to. And why not? I feel like I, at least my personal experiences would lend myself to feel, feel like you're defending your own ideas. You're defending your own opinion. You're defending your, you know, your own decision that you want an organization to make. So I think it's more important to, to hear the why from the people that you're working with than to hear the why not from a decision that I made and, and want to move, move forward with. I would agree on the why uh, versus the why not. I think why allows for the same um, description and an answer without it necessarily seeming as combative. Um, Something about why not to me is more like you're arguing your side versus what the other person is saying versus why seems more open-ended and you can explain your thoughts throughout your answer with that one. Yeah, I would say, yeah, Mary definitely hit the nail on the head. We're not a huge... We're not huge fans of aggressive behavior. Why not? Sounds a little aggressive. I agree with the consensus of the group here. Um, the the one one of the things Paramount does really well is develop a really trusting group dynamic and a team dynamic. And why is okay as long as it's done within the confines of um, the group and the leadership dynamic, which is something I think Paramount as a whole does really really well. Well, Scott, Kyle, Dexter, Mary, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing with us the things that are happening at Paramount, the great work you're doing. If people want to connect with Paramount or learn more about the school, what's the best way for them to do that? Go to our website. All of our email addresses are on our website. And I know certainly speaking for the four people in the room, they're definitely pure of heart in wanting to um, make, whether it's other organizations, um, specific, especially specific to education, that you know, when people's hearts are in the right place and they want to learn as we want to learn from them, that you're going to get responses from us. Um, so I would say go to the website and uh, our emails are there and shoot us an email. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Josh. Thank you, thank you Josh. I hope you found today's interview valuable. We'll be back on Friday to discuss the interview and share some of our key takeaways with you. If you want to share some of your own thoughts on what you heard today, or if you want to leave other feedback for the show, email us at community at lifeasleadership.com. And if you think today's interview could be helpful to someone else who cares about becoming a better leader, go ahead and share it with them. Until next time, keep living and leading well. Hey, thanks for checking out this trailer for the Business Bitcoinization Show. My name is Josh Friedemann, and I'll be with you each episode interviewing business owners about how they're using Bitcoin to enrich their lives and grow their businesses. You might be wondering about the name, and I'll get to that in just a second. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about the show and who it's for. Unless you've lived under a rock for the last decade, you've heard of Bitcoin by now. And if you're like me, you heard about it a while ago, but didn't do anything about it until the last couple of years. Then one day, for whatever reason, it finally clicks. And after that, you enter the Bitcoin rabbit hole, as they say. And the deeper you get, the more you see the value of Bitcoin. But you know, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe you don't know much about Bitcoin, but are interested in learning more. Either way, this show can help you. Each episode will introduce you to an executive or entrepreneur who's using Bitcoin, the hardest money on planet Earth, to improve their life and their business. So, what's with the name? Well, it's a play on the term hyper-Bitcoinization, which is used to describe the eventual rapid adoption of Bitcoin as other currencies get weaker and weaker in relation to it. When you compare a seemingly never-ending supply of dollars to a hard cap of 21 million Bitcoin that will ever exist, 
It feels like only a matter of time until hyper-Bitcoinization happens. The good news is we have the opportunity to be on the front lines of creating a new and frankly better system. Whether you're already sold on Bitcoin and it feels like I'm preaching to the choir, or you're curious to learn more, Business Bitcoinization will help you understand how you and your business can be prepared to take advantage of the massive productivity and wealth that Bitcoin will enable. If Business Bitcoinization sounds like a show for you, go ahead and subscribe. Obviously, you can subscribe in whatever podcast app you're using right now, or go to www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. Once again, that's www.bizbitshow.com slash listen. I'm looking forward to sharing more soon, and until then, keep living and leading well.